Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to this special live afternoon edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, The Rewind team and I thought we should be live this afternoon because votes are still coming in. We couldn't be sure uh, whether there would be changes in some of the outcomes of the election if we did what we normally do, which was to replay our 9 o'clock in the morning show at 2 in the afternoon. So we wanted to be here live for you uh, to give you the very latest on what's happening in the Georgia elections. Um, We also are following the terribly tragic news out of Uvalde, Texas, Uh, Right now, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas is giving a news conference about the tragedy. Um, We now know just awful news, um, as if anything could be worse than what it already is. All of the carnage played out in one room in the schoolhouse. All of the fatalities are children and a teacher in one classroom. And um, as hard as it is to imagine an entire school being the scene of a mass shooting. The fact that it happened in one classroom somehow makes it feel even more vivid and more awful. We're going to talk a little bit about that later in the show because there are political implications uh, to this event, as there are every time there's a mass shooting in this country. Uh, So let's get started with our show today. We have a great afternoon panel. We're very grateful for people who have been up all night or most of the night to stick around to be with us (laughs) this afternoon. We'll start with uh, GPB News political reporter Stephen Fowler. Stephen, uh, where were you last night and how late were you there? (laughs) Uh, I was at Governor Brian Kemp's uh, event. I was the last person out the door and uh, fell asleep (laughs) for about half an hour at 3 a.m. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you for being here. Uh, your colleague Riley Bunch, public policy reporter for GPB News, was there as well. Hi, Riley. Are you holding up okay today? We're doing okay. You know, it was a long night, but an important one, and happy to be here to talk about it. Leroy Chapman, managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who is uh, overseeing all of their uh, coverage, their sprawling coverage of the elections, is with us as well. Leroy, are you feeling a little sleepy at this point in the afternoon? Uh, So caffeine is a performance enhancer. That's all. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you for being here. And we're joined uh, by Tammy Greer. Professor of Political Science at Clark Atlanta University. We're very glad to have you here, Tammy, because one of the things that you watch most closely uh, in your career is how people motivate to vote, who's going out to vote, why are they voting, and the like. So, Tammy, thanks for being with us. Thank you, and I want to co-sign Leroy about the caffeine comment. Okay. (laughs) Um, Stephen, I think... The shock in the Brian Kemp-David Perdue race was not that Brian Kemp won. Every poll suggested that Brian Kemp had a very comfortable lead, as many as 30-plus points over David Perdue. But there's no question, 
When the results of this race turned out to show Kemp with a 50-point advantage, won by more than 50% of the vote, we've got to say that, I think, was pretty startling to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think even Brian Kemp himself and his team were surprised at just the utter shellacking that he uh, conducted. I mean, in the final days of the race, David Perdue was very angry and said, there's no way I'm down 30 points. Well, he was right. Instead of 30, it was 50 points. And uh, it was just utterly, I mean, people also expected Herschel Walker to run ahead of Brian Kemp. But as the votes are coming in now, Kemp did even better in the primary than even Herschel Walker did. And that was also a runaway race. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable in and of itself. Uh, Riley, your thoughts? You know, I think that the vote margin is indicative of how the campaigns were run, right? Brian Kemp ran an extremely successful and extremely strategic and smart campaign where Purdue did not run much of a campaign at all, right? He was just running off of um, the Trump endorsement and the lies and about fraud in the 2020 election. And Brian Kemp was so strategic about how he did things this year, um, about how he was stayed on message about how he handled the pandemic and the strong economy and and leveraged the legislature to not only pass bills um, that uh, that would um, appeal to Republicans, but also the Trump Republicans. Right. So he was very strategic about how he did everything. And the results just they just prove what he did. Uh, Leroy, I, I, I don't want to get into too much speculation, but I, I do think it's fair to try to read David Perdue's mind a little bit and wonder over, say, the last few weeks of this campaign. He wasn't raising any money. He couldn't put TV spots up. He didn't have a cash to do it. His campaign got smaller and smaller in terms of groups that he went out to see. Uh, you can't help but wonder if somewhere in the back of his mind he was thinking, oh, my God, will this thing just be over so I can go on to whatever I'm going to do next? Uh, some of the body language of the campaign certainly indicated a little bit of that. Uh, and another thing to add to that, too, is that uh, Purdue is a very wealthy man. And if he wanted to infuse his campaign with cash himself, uh, he could have, but he decided not to do that. And I think part of what we saw here is, um, I think uh, with our modern politics, uh, we've thrown away some, some, some traditional norms, I think. Uh, it's very difficult to unseat an incumbent governor. And that was that play here. And I know that uh, the Trump element and uh, all of those things, uh, you know, we had to consider. But uh, but it was a tall task for Purdue, no matter what. And um, I think that uh, when the tea leaves were sort of uh, showing themselves early on, uh, what we saw was not a strong finish. Uh, I think uh, he sort of limped to the finish. And um, I think he probably knew early on that this was probably going to be the result, but not this wide, though. Tammy, we'll talk a little bit more about other races on the Republican side, particularly the Brad Raffensperger race, which was probably the biggest surprise of the uh, night. But as long as we're talking about the governor's race, let's turn to Stacey Abrams for a moment. She is now the official Democratic nominee for governor. And today uh, her campaign announced a, 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 a campaign called Georgia Votes, which they're describing as a coordinated campaign that they claim will be the largest ever for a midterm election in a year with races for U.S. Senator and Governor up for grabs 
it will be an opportunity for Democrats, they say, to re-energize a multiracial coalition that powered the party's 2020 victories. It sounds good re-energizing that coalition in the year of Joe Biden's president, of, of the, when Joe Biden's approval numbers continue to drop, maybe trickier than it was in 2018 and 2020. Yes. Um, when I looked at uh, just the top of the ticket, so for governor and for the Senate races, um, the, there was a larger turnout for the, the lieutenant governor races um, and less so much for the Senate races. But we're still hovering less than 30 percent of primary of, of voters who are registered to vote who voted in the primary. Um, and that's, you know, at the, the, the most populous race. So I'm curious as to how we, how uh, both camps, the Democrats and Republicans, um, if for the general election, intend to increase that number um, to to be a bit higher. And if uh, Abrams' campaign uh, and the Democratic Party intend to have this vast coalition um, to that's indicative of the 2020 campaign, then that means that um, you know that the Democratic voters are, they're going to have to increase that tremendously and increase it by at least another um, 30 to 40 to 50 points um, in order to, to get that coalition to come out. So I am very interested in their strategy on how they're going to increase, um, you know, a, another 50 percent of voters to come out and vote in order to get that win that they seem to seek. Well, Tammy, let me just ask you a quick uh, 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 follow-up to that. Is is it fair to say, though, that with no competition in the governor's race on the Democratic side, with Stacey Abrams having it locked up, with Raphael Warnock having really no uh, uh, meaningful competition, is it surprising that there wouldn't be as many Democrats turning out to vote? It's hard to get people to turn out for lower ballot races. I agree. It is tougher to get people to turn out for the the races down ballot. I, I would challenge us, Bill, though, do we talk about down ballot races as much as we talk about top of the ticket? So, you know, when we look at the attorney general, when we look at the lieutenant governor, when we look at secretary of state um, or even superintendent of education, public service commission, those races on the Democratic side had more than two, more than three um, individuals in those races and I'm, I wonder if we as a collective actually discuss those races with the fervor that we talked about the Senate and the governor races. I, I actually at some point want to talk about the very point you're making. Uh, and, and I'll reserve that, I, I hope, for later today, if not on another show, though. Um, Riley, uh, you pointed out that the Abrams campaign uh, put out a statement about the um, Camp victory. At the same time, the Republican Governors Association put a TV spot up already today attacking Stacey Abrams. So why don't you give us what, uh, t- tell us what the Abrams campaign statement was about the Kemp nomination. Well, yesterday really marked um, a point where she could go full blast 
into her general election campaign, right? And we heard that from her on the campaign trail the day of the primary. I was at her press conference at a polling place in Atlanta where she said it was a, quote, new phase of the campaign and mentioned exactly what we were talking about, keeping Democratic voters mobilized and energized. Um, So she came out, her campaign manager came out with a statement today on Brian Kemp's win. They referenced the constitutional carry bill. I know we'll talk about that in the show later in the show. Um, Also talked about you know, his um, ban on abortion and things like that. So really targeting things in his record that don't appeal to the Democratic base. Um, On the other side, it really kicks off um, what we already know, which is that Stacey Abrams has been the primary target of Republicans, even during the primary when they were facing each other. So the Republican Party has been gearing up um, to, you know, immediately, like you said, start launching those attacks against her. Um, Lee Wright, uh, uh, we know that uh, uh, guns are going to be an issue in this campaign to one degree or another, perhaps more so because of the Texas incident. Uh, but the Abrams campaign certainly uses that in their statement attacking Kemp. Among other things, they say years from now, Kemp will be, will be remembered as a one-term governor who pointed a gun at a boy on television, of course, re- referring back to that uh, infamous Kemp TV spot where he was uh, quizzing uh, a date of her, of his uh, daughters, and holding a shotgun across his lap. Yes. Yeah, so if you think about one of the things that uh, Governor Kemp did, and the permitless carry uh, legislation that he championed, so for a uh, Republican primary, uh, you understand that, uh, but uh, how is that going to play? once we get to November. And how is it going to play in this environment where we've seen mass shooting after mass shooting? I mean, if you think about Georgia, we are one year removed from our own mass shooting. And not only that, uh, if you look at what's been happening with the rate of homicides in Metro Atlanta, uh, it's continued to go up. And there have been any number of times we're reporting on people who should not have guns because uh, they, uh, you know, have uh, mental illnesses or things like that. Uh, I will point you to the uh, incident last week uh, at a Buckhead restaurant, and uh, a, a family tried to get their, their kid help. Uh, they, they, they failed in that, and he winds up uh, in a deadly confrontation with police. So in terms of thinking about what Joe Biden said yesterday, so the president Uh, talked about the issue of mental illness, but also talked about guns and said that the United States doesn't have more mental illness, but certainly the United States does have more guns and does less to regulate them. So it's going to be a big debate that's going to be powered by uh, what's in the news right now. Stephen? And, you know, uh, thinking about this, this is this Kemp Abrams rematch. There's not going to be a whole lot of people out there that don't have a strong opinion about Brian Kemp, the sitting governor. There's not going to be a whole lot of people that don't know who Stacey Abrams is and what she stands for. And so in a lot of ways, this election in November, this governor's race is going to be a test of turnout and really see, you know, who can motivate their side to get out more and who has more voters because you have all of these national issues like inflation, like gun debates, like abortion rights that are in the national ethos but have specific Georgia ties and have specific Georgia relevance that both campaigns will be using uh, as a tool to get out their own voters or to attack other voters. And so 
You know, even though there's when we talk about nationalizing races, it's a lot of times things that aren't necessarily relevant to day to day lives in Georgia. But uh, as we talked about with the permitless carry law in Georgia and with Georgia's abortion law and with other things like that, I mean, these next six months are really going to see a lot of debate and discussion about how these national issues impact the 10 million people who live in Georgia. Uh, Stephen, let me, uh, while the ball's in your court, ask you to start us off at another uh, question that I've been interested in thinking about. Um, David Perdue, for all of the kind of uh, abrasive, hostile ways in which he attacked Brian Kemp during the campaign, uh, we have to give him credit. He made a very gracious uh, uh, concession speech early in the evening. I think it was only about 8.30 when he conceded. He uh, called Kemp to congratulate him, and he said, I will do everything in my power to make sure Brian Kemp is elected governor. Now, the question becomes, for all of those uh, Trumpy uh, Georgia voters out there, all of those people who shared Trump, Trump's anger, Purdue's anger about a rigged election, uh, can Purdue help get them back in the Kemp camp at where will Trump stand on that? It's hard to imagine Trump suddenly saying you should vote for Brian Kemp. Well, I wouldn't exactly call it 100 percent gracious. He did start it out by saying everything he said about Brian Kemp was true. Uh, well, OK, fair enough. I mean, it, it's gracious. It's fair gracious. enough. <laughs> it's gracious in comparison to when he wouldn't really acknowledge John Ossoff by name when he lost that race. But the the question does remain, you know, what happens to the people that falsely believe Brian Kemp helped the election be stolen and the things like that? The poll numbers and the election numbers suggest that maybe there's not that big of an appetite for people like that. Or if they do have those feelings, the specter of Stacey Abrams is more compelling to get behind Brian Kemp than to just sit it out and stay home. But it is a reality that we have to face now. I mean, the reason David Perdue is not a U.S. senator right now is because people stayed home instead of voting for a Republican or against Democratic candidates. And so one person that we have not heard from in the aftermath of this uh, drubbing in the polls is Donald Trump. It remains to be seen what he will say and do for Brian Kemp or against Brian Kemp. I mean, uh, I, I think people should know that Stacey Abrams and the prospect of Stacey Abrams being the governor is a hell of a lot more powerful than Brian Kemp maybe stole 2020. Riley? You know, I would add another additional question to that. Not only is it what will Trump do, what will Herschel Walker do, right? He did win um, his primary handedly so easily. He's not only because he was backed by Donald Trump so heavily, but also because, you know, he a hometown hero has this popularity and fame among Georgia voters. But he has not made any attempt to tie himself to Kemp or Purdue in those races. And I think it will be interesting to see what he does now that Kemp is the nominee. Um, and he is also the nominee because he's walking the line of he has the Trump backing. Does he kind of uh, support Kemp? What does he do? So that's another question and thing, something that I'll be watching. Uh, but, you know, in a way, Tammy, uh, it, it, Brian Kemp and Herschel Walker, 
uh, do have one thing in common. For the most part, both of them uh, decided to ignore Donald Trump and anything Donald Trump had to say during this race. They do have some common ground in the sense that uh, they, they were both hesitant, reluctant to invoke the president. Although, on the other hand, you know, Herschel Walker did appear on stages with Trump, and certainly you'd imagine that Trump would want to be able to continue boosting Herschel Walker. Right. And, and if, I, if I'm correct, um, last night when Herschel Walker was being interviewed or even in his speech acknowledged the long-term relationship that he has with the former president, um, and, you know, going back to the 80s when the former president used to own um, a football team. Um, I find it uh, fascinating um, with Herschel Walker that his speech last night um, uh, appeared to come across as moderate. Um, some of the items that he noted in his speech, you know, one could argue um, was uh, more moderate than conservative Republican. And yet, you know, he continues to harp on buzzwords when it comes to the issues um, for Republicans. Um, and, and I noted um, that one of the items he continued to say is that people are hurting financially in this country. Yet when you turn to Brian Kemp um, or in specifically in Georgia, Herschel, according to Herschel Walker, yet when you turn and listen to Kemp, Kemp is touting the economic successes of his administration here in Georgia. So it's almost as if they're playing against each other on similar issues um, in order to get um, whatever enemy, quote unquote, there is uh, for for whatever side that they're on. So Herschel Walker is fighting um, against Washington uh, and fighting against Warnock um, and saying how everything is going down the hill in the basket, yet, the current governor is, is touting all of these successes. So it's kind of a Jekyll and a Hyde situation that's going on here when it comes to what is the actual um, uh, temperature in space for uh, those here in Georgia. Okay. Uh, people who listen to the show regularly know that I'm perfectly fine when I say uh, that I just said something that really isn't right. <laughs> and, and when I said that Herschel Walker was sort of avoiding uh, Donald Trump, simply not true. I mean, he did, in fact, uh, go to Mar-a-Lago uh, to be with Trump. He, had, he was on a stage with Trump here. I think it's a fair thing to say, Leroy, that to an extent, Herschel, Herschel Walker avoided a lot of the Trumpy. Uh, allegations about fake elections. He didn't get caught up in the Trumpian uh, grievances that we're so used to hearing from the former president. I think that's a way in which he's similar to Brian Kemp, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, and the, the issue for, for um, candidate Walker is this. Uh, he Does he deploy Trump, and will he be an ally in the fall? And And that's a calculation, because if you think about, of course, what happened with with uh, Senator Perdue, uh, he needed those votes. And with those folks staying home, uh, that was probably decisive. Uh, will will he need him? Um, will he, as a candidate, uh, be able to, um, again, make those, uh, uh, garner that enthusiasm? I think that the Trump folks have, have demonstrated that uh, they can deliver upon. Uh, will he need Trump in order to do that? Uh, I guess that's the question that remains to be seen. Now, is there some risk, too? Because if, if Trump comes here to stump for Herschel Walker, <laughs> will he also 
uh, lean into the grievance and play right sort of into the hands of the Abrams uh, Democrat uh, machine, because when they do that, uh, they're able to, to certainly hurt the other part of the ticket. So it's going to be a pretty tricky thing uh, with uh, Kemp and with Herschel Walker basically running sort of as a Republican ticket. I think that's the way it was framed by, by Donald Trump himself, uh, that, that you needed to do and you needed uh, Herschel Walker and sort of them as a ticket, and that Brian Kemp would be unable to deliver victory with, with Stacey Abrams. So it, it, it's, Stephen, it's going to be fascinating oops. to see how they're used. I apologize for uh, jumping on you there, Leroy. Uh, Stephen, uh, keep this going for another minute before the break. So, I mean, the the interesting thing to watch with Herschel Walker is what is he going to do in a general election environment where he's not really running, uh, where he's running against an established incumbent candidate and not just running as football star Herschel Walker, you know, easy breezy cover girl uh, winning the primary without any issue. I mean, the campaign that we've seen so far is Herschel Walker not really articulating much from a positional standpoint not really answering difficult questions from reporters, not really holding public events with potential voters. And there's a lot about Herschel Walker that the candidate himself that we don't really know. All we've seen is the constant barrage of stories about his questionable past and the statements that he's made that have been inflated and issues with domestic violence. And so a lot of Herschel Walker has been defined already in a negative way, and for him to be able to beat Raphael Warnock, he's going to have to do a lot more, and his campaign is going to have to do a lot more to get Herschel Walker, the candidate, out there and start talking about positions and start talking about why he's better than Raphael Warnock and do things more than friendly Fox News interviews and uh, private meet and greets. Um, we got to get to our first break, but uh, just so you are Per, you know, have complete confidence that you're going to see plenty of messaging on both sides of that Senate race. Uh, Rick Dent, uh, a frequent panelist on the show, sent us totals the other day of spending in the Senate race, uh, even before uh, the primaries were over. Democrats had spent $67 million, Republicans $40 million, and we're only now getting started with this race. I think you're going to see a lot more from both sides in the months ahead. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to our special afternoon live edition of Political Rewind. Uh, Clark Atlantis, Tammy Greer, AJC's Leroy Chapman, GPB Riley Bunch, and Stephen Fowler are all with us uh, for the show today. I just got a little snack, a little tidbit. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time uh, talking about in terms of election results. I mentioned on the show the other day that one of my favorite weekly features in the New York Times is the dialogue that uh, Gail Collins and Brett Stevens uh, have. She's a pretty liberal Democrat. He's a relatively conservative 
uh, uh, commentator. And uh, one of the things that Brett Stevens said he was looking forward to in the Georgia primaries was to see whether or not Marjorie Taylor Greene was going to be able to get through her primary. And all of the panelists on the show and I said, what? What is he talking about? And just to prove a point, Marjorie Taylor Greene won that primary with what? I think about 70% of, of the vote, right? Right, Riley? Oh, yeah. She handedly won her primary. She had about five primary challengers. And their main um, kind of argument against her was that this there were voters in her district that felt that she could not represent them in Congress because she had been stripped of her committees. But that that section of voters does not nearly outweigh the voters in the deep red Northwest Georgia district that are Trump loyalists, but also um, just far right kind of that faction of the Republican Party. Um, so she won without 70 percent of the votes. And also you have to look no further than the cash that she raised. She raised a staggering amount of cash. None of her challengers yeah. came close, <clears throat> but she will face um, Marcus Flowers, the Democrat in the general. Yeah, Stephen, I wanted to mention that. I mean, again, just another moment with this. Um, Marcus Flowers spe- raised a staggering amount of money for a, a Democrat. And there was, I think, $8 million somewhere in that neighborhood. But he's ve- he is unknown, too. Really, we know very little about him. He didn't do media interviews. Um, and he lost a one over Wendy Davis, who is a very well-known Democrat up in Rome, been a city commissioner. She's on the Democratic National Committee. So uh, I think Democrats have got to be a little concerned. They got a guy who's a blank slate as opposed to someone with a lot of experience and who's well-known in the party. Well, if you look at the Democratic contenders in the 14th district since it's been drawn uh, in the last redistricting cycle, uh, you've got nobody. Uh, you've got somebody who ran and then dropped out. You had somebody who was literally in jail on Election Day. And so Marcus Flowers is probably a step up in that regard. But if you look at the staggering amount of money that he's raised and what he's spent it on, it's not the type of things that you would expect to have like door knocking and get out the vote operations to squeeze every vote you can out of a district that's not necessarily friendly Democratic territory. You know, in 2018, I covered the district where local party leaders were trying to build that infrastructure and apparatus to, you know, maybe lose by 40 points instead of 45 points, because in a statewide race, every single vote matters. And based on the burning of cash that we've seen so far, that's not necessarily the direction that Marcus Flowers is going in the 14th district, because no matter what pithy ad comes out on your TV 10 times a day, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not losing that district in November. Yeah, it's not, it's very unlikely. Um, so, uh, Leroy, uh, if if you think I'm wrong, please correct me. Uh, the biggest surprise of the night was Brad Raffensperger's outright victory. No runoff needed against Jody Heiss. Again, Jody Heiss, a proponent of the big lie endorsed by Donald Trump, Brad Raffensperger, who a year ago seemed to be on the rope, seemed to be a guy with no political future, comes back and not only wins, but wins by like 20 points. I agree with you, Bill. Uh, When you think about where Raffensperger came from, so, um, you know, there was a a thought that, that he would not survive a primary. Uh, and if you look at the political calculus that not only he was making, but, you know, of course, Kemp's going to run. But everyone who 
uh, all the Republicans who are being targeted because of the election. And so that that includes Jeff Duncan. Uh, it included, of course, Brad Raffensperger. He was at the top of the list uh, he, because of the infamous call. And of course, he's the secretary of state. Uh, and then when you look at Chris Carr, too, uh, you're talking about those are the folks who were primarily targeted based upon uh, what happened in the 2020 election. And so there was great thought that he would not survive a primary where uh, Trump was a, an opponent and you had a Trump-selected opponent and you had Trump influence in it. And here we are. And so there is one thing that we are looking at, and we think that, that maybe uh, a couple of things uh, played a factor in this. Uh, one, uh, Jody Heiss's campaign probably was, uh, was not, is not going to go down to history as being the best in the world. Uh, I think yeah. it's fair to say that. And, and two, uh, I think that there were probably, we think, there were probably some Democrats who crossed over to vote based upon the fact that when you think about election integrity, uh, you look at what happened in 2020, and but for uh, Republicans who stuck more to the duties of their office rather than being swayed by the pressure of the moment and the pressure being exerted by Donald Trump, uh, you know, they understand how critical it is. And, and so I think he probably wound up getting some of that support, too. So, um, you know, the, the idea that he'd been a, run, a runoff and not survive it, people thought that. But him winning outright, a complete surprise. Um, Tammy, it strikes me this is just your kind of race. It tells you how loud the voice of the voter can really be in the middle of a lot of political noise. <laughs> Absolutely. So the, it, it begins and ends with the voter, right? So um, I, I find I, I agree very much with Leroy in his assessment of, um, you know, folks looking at Rothensberger saying, you know, in the face of not only um, in the face of the former president um, attacking the race, but almost attacking Georgia and how um, the voters of Georgia and how, um, you know, the, the processes in Georgia um, were were managed last year. I, I think that maybe that also added to um, the support of Raffensperger and that he was defiant in um, in in the face of all of this when it comes to uh, the Republicans um, and Trump supporters who were um, demeaning his integrity, demeaning the process, demeaning the office, demeaning the the voters of Georgia. So I think, you know, him standing up and being defiant in that moment as well uh, was very, very helpful. Um, and I would be interested, Leroy, in how many Democratic voters, you know, possibly could have crossed over and chose a Republican ballot yeah, it, it, just to vote for Raffensperger, you know, if that if that is the case, um, because it's, it's very fascinating. And again, um, perhaps we should give more credence and credit to the voters that an educated voter may do the right thing. Stephen, I have no question that given how you like to get down and crunch data, you were going to get to some numbers on just what Tammy is looking for. How many of those people who took Republican ballots but took Democratic ballots in past elections actually did it and gave a vote to Raff? You know, they went there for Raffensperger. So before Election Day, we know that about 38,000 people that pulled a Democratic primary ballot in 2020 pulled a Republican ballot this time. Obviously, we don't know who those people have voted for, but 
when you look at Brad Raffensperger being about 20,000 or so votes ahead of runoff range, it's not impossible to suggest that people crossed over and voted for him or against Jody Heiss and helped drag him across the finish line. Also looking at the data, Jody Heiss did not really do that well outside of his current 10th congressional district boundaries. He didn't really raise much money. He didn't spend it well. He wasn't on TV. Uh, getting a Trump endorsement doesn't matter if you don't tell people about it. And, you know, Brad Raffensperger, uh, really, it, it was the the yin to Jody Heiss's non-campaign yang. Raffensperger spent a lot of time in Rotary Clubs around the state mm-hmm. talking about the election and talking about voting things. He loaned himself hundreds of thousands of his own money to put mailers out attacking Jody Heiss and defending Georgia's election law, which many conservatives like and appreciate. And he spent a lot of time talking about banning non-citizen voting, which to most people is something that they don't want and they don't know that it's already illegal. And so he spent the time crafting that line of election defender, but also getting just enough partisanship in there to get those voters that aren't consuming every Trump truth social post or everything you see to get that coalition of 52-ish percent across the finish line. So I'm not that surprised that he was able to win outright, given the way the race is gone. I, I think you make a lot of good points there. I mean, l- let's face it, uh, Brad, everyone in the state knows Brad Raffensperger's name because of his confrontation with Donald Trump. Jody Heiss was known in a congressional district. And as you say, he did virtually nothing to introduce himself to the people around the state of Georgia. But here's the thing, uh, Riley. Uh, we know that the Democratic Secretary of State's race goes to a runoff. When the eventual nominee emerges, um, if in fact a lot of Democrats went over to Raffensperger because they think he's a man of integrity, uh, they think he's a man who will be honest in the way he handles elections, um, that Democratic candidate is going to have to prove that regardless of the fact that he certainly stood against Donald Trump, Raffensperger still is a conservative when it comes to election issues. He supported SB 202. As Stephen points out, he talked about he's not going to let illegal, uh, undocumented immigrants vote. Um, He's talking now about eliminating automatic voter registration. Voters are not going to get a guy who's a real liberal about voting rights. Well, absolutely. And that's when we talk about in all these races, there's going to be the primary campaign and then the general election campaign where they're going to have to appeal to a broader um, uh, coalition of voters or mobilize their own base enough to beat their opponent. Right. But I think the secretary of state's office is a particularly interesting one to watch, watch because the 2020 election not only put a spotlight on Raffensperger himself, but the duties that the secretary of state fulfills and the importance of the voting system, right? So think about in this primary, if Jody Heiss had won, it would have been such a different um, ballot, Republican ballot for voters to look at in November, right? So it just goes back to the importance of um, the, him scraping out this primary win. He's going to be, you know, a, a, a more con- still more conservative, but generally liked Secretary of State candidate. 
Yes, but again, the Democratic candidate's going to have to convince those people who crossed over to pull a ballot for him that they should come back to the Democratic side when they pull the lever or when they punch or whatever they're doing, touch the screen for their uh, Democratic Secretary of State candidate, I think. Um, Before we have to take another break, uh, Leroy, uh, 7th District congressional race. Um, Carolyn Bordeaux, the incumbent in the 7th, faces Lucy McBath, who comes over as the incumbent from the 6th, and beats Carolyn Bordeaux pretty handily, which in many ways was not terribly surprising. Lucy McBath has such a high national profile. She's aligned herself with some significant uh, national uh, liberal organizations like Planned Parenthood, uh, Every Town for Gun Safety, clearly something in her sweet spot. Um, But here's what I think is interesting about that race is Carolyn Bordeaux uh, she uh, pitched herself when she won the, the, the two years ago as a moderate Democrat, thinking that's perhaps what Gwinnett County, especially voters, needed, um, and, and also to get some of that Forsyth County vote, maybe. Um, but this time around, her campaign objected when I still called her a moderate on the show the other day. It it says to me that the district lines have changed, and that makes a difference. But it also, the fact that McBath won so handily says that, yes, Democrats, uh, Democratic voters are now much more progressive than they were at one other point in our history. Well, well this one uh, strikes uh, close to home because I live out here, and uh, so I was uh, in Rob Woodall's district when he was elected. So I spent uh, most of the time uh, with he as my congressperson. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Bordeaux, when he uh, stepped aside when she was elected. Uh, so she was my congressperson. Then I got drawn out. And so when I got drawn out, uh, now I am in Andrew Clyde's district. So that is my congressperson. So uh, I think the results you're saying is what, uh, what redistricting has brought. Because uh, Bordeaux, in a district that had been, uh, you know, uh, with Rob Woodall, a Republican, who had that district and the demographics, I think, sort of took over and uh, gave Bordeaux a chance, uh, that electorate probably, it, it was, because with, with that district, um, I think uh, you needed to be a moderate in order to win an unseated Republican. Uh, and uh, given that now, uh, this district is completely changed. The demographics are much, much more liberal. Uh, when you look at uh, where it runs, it runs uh, and takes out uh, several portions of Gwinnett County uh, that are in the new seventh, uh, a lot of racial minorities impacts them in. And in the northern side, some of the less diverse places in Gwinnett County uh, are now in Andrew Clyde's district. So it's a completely, completely different district that uh, Bordeaux had to run in. So that seventh compared to the seventh that she ran in that used to be Rob Woodall's district, completely different. Right. That's, that's really important uh, to point out. I do those things, Stephen, again, it tells us something about the fact that uh, Democrats are much pr- more progressive people today than they were, say, in 2014 or 2016, even. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, the, the, there's the polarization of national politics. But then when these districts are drawn in such a way where you know, kind of the more extreme ideology can win out because that's what the district supports. But also, too, I mean, Georgia is not the same state that it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so the people that have moved to Georgia, the industries that have moved to Georgia, the overall climate in Georgia, both politically and economically, just supports a lot different 
uh, type of representation and type of uh, voter than we've seen in Georgia's past. All right, let's do this. Let's go get to our final break on this special afternoon edition of Political Rewind. Back with a little more after these messages. Stephen Fowler, you like to keep us up to speed on election issues with your Battleground Ballot Box uh, podcast. Uh, So we should ask, or not ask, we should make sure that listeners know uh, primary runoffs are coming up quicker than they used to. Uh, People are going to have to go back to the polls on June 21st, just a little less than a month away, right? Right. It is a very quick turnaround thanks to Georgia's new voting law. Instead of a nine-week runoff dragging along, it's now four weeks, and it's super quick turnaround. Uh, Basically, early voting starts almost as soon as elections officials certify this result. And because of Georgia's runoff rules, we have a lot of races that are still to be decided. The Republican nominee in the 2nd Congressional District in Southwest Georgia to face Democrat Sanford Bishop. The 6th and the 10th Congressional District Republican races where two Trump-backed candidates are in second place heading into those runoffs. And uh, we've got other races uh, for other primaries that will be decided in a couple weeks. And so it's not over yet, and people should still pay attention because in many of those races that are heading to runoffs, the way the districts are drawn, this is going to basically decide who the next representative is for a lot of these things. So it's definitely important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, four weeks. Hey, you know, I remember back in the old days when we had three week run. I was in the runoff was three weeks after uh, the uh, election in Georgia. Uh, but anyhow, June 21st is uh, uh, when we come back to the polls to vote in the runoffs. Um, Tammy, uh, let me start with you on this. Uh the, the tragedy in Texas is just impossible to comprehend. Um, but, but in fact, there is a political aspect to it. I mean, there's ever-increasing number of people saying, when are we going to do something about guns? Do you imagine that Democrats are going to be able to find, make a quick turn and elevate some sort of gun safety measures in their campaigns and make them top issues? Or is it more complicated than that? It's more complicated because there is an emotional reaction to um, people having firearms. And listening to uh, Governor Abbott today um, is fascinating because there's this dichotomy that comes across every time there's a mass shooting. Um, one is mental health and the other one is access to guns, right? Um, And we are left with this false choice that it's either or, and sometimes it's both and. At the same time, if you hear folks say that it's a mental health crisis, well, these are some of the same folks who deny expanding health care. These are some of the same folks who take money out of the healthcare system. These are the same folks who take money out of schools to help young people. So it's very interesting to me to have this type of situation going on um, when the question I think that we all have to ask ourselves is do we want to see something different? 
And if it is, then going to these corners and having this either or conversation really doesn't help with us being able to move forward and not seeing these babies, these babies who have yet to realize their full potential um, to be left at this stage. And so, yeah. Oh, thank thank you for that. Riley? You know, it was hard to concentrate on the primary election yesterday when this news came out. A lot of us were at um, election night parties. And I know we talked about this earlier, but here's the reality we have in Georgia. We had our own mass shooting a year ago. Um, and this legislative session, we passed a constitutional carry that um, takes a, away the requirement to have a permit from the state to carry a concealed handgun in, in public. At the same time, Republican lawmakers um, touted their efforts for mental health, um, touted their efforts in education policy, right? Um, so to have kind of this narrative going on in Georgia to see these things happen at a national level, you ask, how do Republicans respond to this, right? But will they respond to it? Because we had our mass shooting, but then we had loosened gun laws. Um, so it'll be interesting to watch. Leroy? So we, we've been here, uh, obviously, and when you think about how long ago Sandy Hook was, we all thought that Sandy Hook was going to, going to be a turning point, uh, given the victims, given you know how uh, we have to rethink every aspect of American life if an elementary school now has to be a hard target. So that, that changes the dynamic of our society in ways that uh, I think at the time uh, most of us thought that this would change some of what we we thought about the gun debate, which uh, we've had no movement on. And it's just, you know, you look now and there's really not been much movement at all uh, on the gun debate. So um, I don't know what else has to happen. Uh, I, I don't see anything uh, with, with what we have going now, which says that uh, some of the issues at the federal level will get resolved and some of the politics will break and that... Um, you know, there will be a groundswell with, among voters where maybe the voters can break it. Uh, I'm not but, sure, but, but that's certainly... Uh, go, go ahead, Bill. No, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, cause we're, but, but, but do Democrats, Stephen, see this as an issue they can push? Chuck Schumer has already announced today that he is not going to have a vote on any kind of gun measure uh, soon, because he says there are too many things to take into consideration. So do Democrats, do we think, see this as an issue they can run on to get um, uh, voters energized? I mean, it certainly won't stop people from trying. Uh, I mean, there are, I mean, look at Lucy McBath, for example. I mean, gun violence is a central tenet to why she felt called to run for Congress. Lucy McBath is not just going to not talk about it because the greater Congress is not going to do something about it. But I mean, the political arena that we're in now where everything is just so extreme, it's probably going to be a difficult conversation to have, especially as Democrats haven't really had a lot of successes and don't really have the margins to take more ambitious steps. Yeah, I just wonder whether Democrats think voters will come out to vote on this as an issue in the way they think they can get them out over abortion. And I think the answer to that is complicated. And I think, Tammy, you suggested uh, part of the reason why. 
Um, we're completely out of time uh, for today's show. I wish we weren't. I'd love to have more time to talk to the four of you because I really appreciate your conversation this afternoon. Uh, Stephen Fowler, uh, Tammy Greer, Leroy Chapman, Riley Bunch, uh, thank you so much on a very busy uh, day or the day after a late, late night for being with us this afternoon. Um, that's it for us for today. We're back again tomorrow, and I look forward to seeing you then. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.